Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. I'm coming to you from the North Shore of Oahu, where weekly I interview some of the world's most inspiring people from business, philanthropy, and entertainment. I love collecting humans, and these are some of my favorites I've found along the way. This podcast is brought to us by Capita Financial Network. Do you need help with the next steps of your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, state attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call or schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. Today, we have a very impressive guest, um, Human Radfar, who has a very diverse background in finance and business as an entrepreneur. He's both operated, ran, and founded companies, as well as been an investor, not only as a managing partner and um, founder of Expa, which has been a part of some incredible uh, bets and businesses over the years, but also he is an early investor directly into companies you've all heard about, including Uber and others. And we're really excited today, Huma, to have you on and talk with you a little bit about your remarkable career and learn a little bit from you as an entrepreneur and investor. You have a wealth of knowledge in a lot of different verticals. Um, so maybe we can start off by having us hear a little bit about you. Like, what was your journey to get where you are? I mean, again, so you've had, it seems like you're like the Midas touch where anything you've been a part of has been a tremendous success. I'm sure that you've had failures along the way because everyone knows entrepreneurship and business is a high contact sport that is wrought with peril. <laughs> but I'm really excited to hear a little bit um, what got you to where you are and a little bit of your journey. Feel free to take us on, on that a little bit. And thanks again for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Um, it's a long it's a long story, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll start at the beginning. Uh, so my family, I'm an immigrant. So I was born in London. And uh, grew up though in Pennsylvania, so I'm a Steelers fan. So if, if that's an issue, let's get it out on the table right now. <laughs> grew up in Pittsburgh. No issues here. <laughs> no issues. Okay, great. Um, and um, you know, my parents both uh, ran their own offices. They they got divorced when I was younger, and I always saw them working hard. I always saw them um, be very independent. Uh, and I was technical. Um, my, my parents and my, my dad in particular was always encouraging us to like work with computers, um, from a young age. Like I was coding since I was like 12. And, um, after I finished graduate school earning on, I got into the startup game. So I started my first company and I haven't looked back. So I've only been doing, uh, either building startups or helping invest and advise startups, uh, for gosh, the last 20 years. That's amazing. I mean, so you started out coding super young and this was like what, what time for, was on the nineties? I mean, I'm guessing your age now. It's on. Oh God, me. I'm old. I'm Get old. To the uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah. Early yeah, on. It was early nineties. Yeah. So I'll, I'll put it this way. I remember when the first browser came out that Mark Andreessen wrote. Um, it was, I think it was mosaic mosaic. And I remember HTML one. And I remember building a webpage when they, like there was, like you could count the number of web pages. That's like where That's it was. So, That's yeah. insane. I know I think about that all the time. Like I remember getting an email and they were like, there's this thing called emails, you know, <laughs> be like, how is this going to be used? This instant, you know, ability to communicate. Um, so fascinating. Um, but uh, I'm so excited to human to hear a little bit. So you're an immigrant, grew up in London and your parents were both successful entrepreneurs. Where were you guys originally from? Tell me about your background. So, uh, yeah, my parent. Well, I'm Iranian, and um, my parents are both Iranian, and uh, they left. I want to say it was like right as the revolution was starting in um, 1979. So well, my father uh, would kill me if I didn't say it. So he always makes sure they didn't flee the revolution. Uh, they were leaving anyway, um, and uh, and then uh, yeah. So we we were in England, and then I was born, and then after I guess I was old enough to be moved they uh they went to pittsburgh because my uncle and aunt had been there before and so early on you you fell in love with computer software tech you understood it 
in a way that would have been first to the trough, I think, you know, again, because it was being created while you were being immersed in learning. So what was your first like major entrepreneurial step up to that, you know, initiative? I mean, you're currently the CEO and founder of Collective, which I'm so excited for you to share a little bit about that today on the show. But what was kind of, where does the impetus of start as putting on your chops for as an entrepreneur? I mean, it's interesting depending on how far you want to want to go back. But, um, you know, my first official like real venture back company was, was Advis, which we um, sold to Oracle. But my first project and my first, what kind of got me thinking about really genuinely uh, starting a company was um, Netflix and movies. And so when I was an undergrad, so I, I guess I will, I'll, I'll, rele- I'll release my age here. So I, I went to college in 1998 and I love movies. Like I love movies. And I used to go to Blockbuster for those of the, you know, folks that are listening here that are old remember <laughs> Blockbuster, you know, you'd go, you'd go rent your tapes and, uh, and DVDs and that was it. But like they had this thing, late fees, right? And I was the worst. I would like not rewind, charge me, not bring it back at time, charge me. So I'd racked up like $80 or something like that, which for me at the time was like really bad. And then I went to with my girlfriend at the time and uh, they wouldn't let me rent this video unless I paid it. And I flipped. I mean, I'm, I'm younger at this point. And I'm like, this is not going to exist. Cause, and I'd gone to college. And you know, at that time, if you remember, so there was dial-up was the predominant way that you access the internet. So it's incredibly slow, like 56K. But if you were in school, they had high-speed internet. So it was like everyone was using like Napster and all these tools to like steal music, steal movies. Like it was like crazy time, right? This was like everyone was terrified of the internet because everyone in the content space thought this is it, like piracy. Like how are we going to stop it? The world's um, over. <laughs> the world's over. And nothing could be further from the truth at this point, right? Like everyone's gone to legal yeah. subscription services and it's super highly regulated. Yeah. Um, which is what they all wanted, obviously. But so what I was thinking of is like, well, if there's like a, there's going to be a way for us to watch movies online and eventually it's not going to be a computer, but they will be connected devices. And, um, I started looking at alternatives and like the only thing that I could find was Netflix. And there was this company and it was this like small little startup on the West coast that it was like, you could rent DVDs. And they'd send it to you and you could hold them longer. And so it was like, wait a minute. So I got to wait a couple days for this DVD and then I got to take, send it back. And it just seemed like a hassle. You know what I mean? And I'm like, this is it. This is what Silicon, this is Silicon Valley, best company, like a company that's cool. Anyway, obviously they came out with streaming later, but I, I, so I, my friend and I wanted to build a streaming kind of service and, um, found a paper from Bell Atlantic, um, about how you could stream video over, um, DSL, which was like the predominant transform mechanism at that time and we, we started making that company like we didn't know how we we're monetized it but we're like thinking it'd be like three bucks you you pay for kind of more like if you have comcast or something like that where you pay for the movies or apple tv that's kind of what we were thinking which is a model right um there's also now streaming and all you can eat and that was what we did so we worked on that and then the bottom fell out and so like we started building out the the, the you know the initial technology and then i remember I was working with a professor and he's like, yeah, so this is over. Nobody's going to fund startups, let alone kids out of school. You're going to have a lot of trouble getting a job. You just you got to go to grad school. And so that's what drove me to grad school was like the end of that project. Um, so I wouldn't even call it a failure. Uh, I would call it an idea that never even got sealed because we didn't even get to fail. Well, what a visionary to see that ahead of headlights. Like that's so fascinating. And it sounds like maybe that's, is that one of your gifts? Like, have you ever taken the strength finders test on Clifton? Have you ever taken that where you find out a little bit about your core strengths as a human being? No, I should, I should do it. No, I, oh, I, you I, should I'm totally done. do it. It's, it's a great book, but it basically has a, a concept in it that, you know, a lot of times in our culture in the West, we focus on all of our weaknesses and we try to improve upon them kind of the, and we, and we actually like kind of celebrate the Rudy Rudebergs of the world. You know, he's the guy from, oh yeah. Dang, you know, Rudy and like you know here he was he wasn't very naturally good at football but he worked so so hard and then he got like two minutes in you know like and we celebrate that when actually research shows all the the book gets into this longitudinal study that we're like built with innate giftings as individuals and you can see it as young as kindergarten and you track it 20 30 40 years out and the same core natural propensities and skill sets are there 
So the argument is triple down on what you're good at and just make up for your weaknesses by partnering with the right, uh, you know, co-pilots and, and entrepreneurs and partners or hire the people that are good at what you suck at. Because if you just stick to, you know, what you're good at, you're going to become phenomenal because there's that natural propensity and wiring, especially if you enjoy it. And so, yeah, they go into it and then in the end you take a test and find out what your strengths are. And it's, it's all about the utility of your strengths. And one of them is visionary and I'm sitting here just hearing over and over again, what your your thinking is, and looking at your resume, and I'm like, gosh, maybe that's one of yours. But do you think you can see things before anyone else does? Are you able to like vision, envision what what will be on the horizon before anybody else? Because that, that makes for a great um, investor. I I say on average, I haven't had a lot of difficulty understanding where things are going to go from a technology perspective. I'm generally like it's it's not it hasn't been my the hardest thing for me. I think the challenge that I learned was that's not enough. So what I, I mean, I'll, I'll give you, you know, so crude approximation, like 1% maybe of people can really start to see where things are going in a particular domain. I don't proclaim to know everything where everything's going to the world, but then, you know, these particular areas, I feel like I just spend so much time and I'm so passionate about it. And, and I started to kind of hone an ability to see what's going to happen. But then 1% of those people can take action on those and, and, you know, create opportunity from it, whether it be create a company to capitalize on that opportunity, which is obviously very hard or even make an investment. And that's difficult, right? So it's like 1% of 1%. That's the people that you see that can have this outside success because it's difficult, right? Like knowing where something is going to go isn't enough. What if you know and you bet on the wrong team as an investor? What if you know, and you don't deploy enough capital or, you, you know, it's timing, um, so it's, it's a, I mean, I, I would definitely say it's a valuable skill set and one that I think I've gotten better at. Um, I have, you know, it's, it's kind of something like my friends joke around with me about, um, I've even had like people poke fun at me and like wedding speeches and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I, I wish, I wish that was all it took. I wish that was all it took. <laughs> well, it sounds like you have either learned or naturally again, have some other strengths because you've obviously had the Venn diagram of whatever else it took. Cause you've had so many great successes. So you saw your company. Um, how old were you when you sold your company to, um, amateur or sorry to, um, Oracle. Well, yeah. Um, how old was I? It was 2015. We signed the deal. Um, so yeah, 2015, what is it now? It's 2023. So eight years ago, yeah, I was like 32, 33. Okay, yeah. So I mean, you're, that's really young to have a big exit like that. And to to it's every entrepreneur's dream to like experience the fruits of their labor. How long did you build the company? Was the company until you had that sell from founding? We got our first. So we we raised our first venture around 2006. Um, and then money hit the bank, you know, 2016. So it was 10 years and done 10 for, years. for the company. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And yeah, we had um, the recession was what dragged it out. Um, that, oh, uh, yeah. And the lip of 2008 to 2011 yeah. was, was very challenging. I think everything got hard. A lot of companies, a lot of my friends uh, struggled through that as we did, but yeah. um, made it some dense. Human, I love that you acknowledge that some of it's timing and luck. Like some of it is stuff out of our control because every entrepreneur I've ever known who I end up really respecting as a mentor, they always take that into consideration of like, Hey, you have certain things that are in the locus of your control. And then there's things that aren't, and all you can do is just white knuckle the things that aren't, but everything else you can, like, you actually can do your best, you know, to implement sound thinking and practices and, and good decision-making. Um, so tell me a little bit after that, you then went into, um, to investing through a fund and tell us about Expa. Is it, was that kind of your next thing is like, okay, I'm going to, start investing more and you started out doing direct investments and then led to a fund itself. Maybe tell us about that journey and how different that was from going from a founder operator to now picking, you know, betting on jockeys and betting on the horses yourself. So Expo is pretty unique for a number of reasons. So um, the founding partner, uh, Garrett Camp was the founder of a company called Stumble Upon. And that's how I met him. Um, so when the social uh, wave happened, so you had, you know, Facebook, Twitter, there were some large outcomes. There were so many companies that were competing for that. One of them was StumbleUpon. And it's interesting because he sold it 
made a lot of money at the time and sold it, like, I think, for $70 million right away and then bought back, bought it back much more cheaply from eBay, ran it again. Second time didn't work. And that was what, and then during that, he founded Uber with Travis. That worked, obviously. Um, and so, you know, he wanted to build a company to build companies. He wanted to be the hands-on partner that we didn't get. Because coming up, like, he was technical and, you know, a bunch of our friends were, were more product or technical people. And a lot of the venture community came from like banking or consulting and whatnot, who was, you know, in the cohort that was advising us. It's ironic because the, the original venture, venture folks, um, there was quite a few operators. Like you look at Sequoia, you look at like Don Valentine and and these guys, like they were, they'd had like John Doerr even like from uh, Paul Kleiner, all these guys had done it worked like they had operating experience, but when the dot com happened, or as the and as the tech bubble happened, the first one, they were growing really quickly. These funds, and a lot of people, you know, they hired the Harvard MBA and all that. And I'm not sliding those people. They just when you're in the Series C or Series A, some of the decisions you need to make as a founder or some of the training that you need, they just didn't have the reps on that. Right. And so right, that right. was kind of what what the what he was thinking about. And he was like, well, I want to be the partner that we didn't have and. We, we can build companies like we'll, we'll like actually incubate them and like we'll work on them with them that was how it started and then we started doing more investment um and then that's where i i kind of played a larger role over time and and i spent most of my time before i left investing um through our funds so our last fund was about 200 million which they're still deploying incredible how how many deals do you think you ended up looking at or, or have you now you have a family office you are now oh gosh. um co-founded a new company which we talk about collective but have you just seen endless endless deals thousands. and thousands, thousands. okay so you, easily you yeah so i'm thinking so many of our listeners have investments our founders co-founders our operators um and c-suite uh executives inside of businesses what do you think are there any kind of like in your case because you it didn't seem like you picked a vertical i mean you've done a lot of different you've invested a lot of different companies um, maybe you could talk a little about your, your investment thesis and also like, what are things you look at? What are some key things? Are there any like top level, like, oh yeah, the minute I see this, um, it's interesting, but you know, these are some flags as well as an investor, any, any insights you can get would be just incredible. I was more general at the beginning because I wasn't sure, you know, where I wanted to apply myself. And there was just certain areas I wanted to learn, frankly. I think there are some things that I was very, uh, I'm, I, and I continue to be focused on. So it depends a lot on the stage. I spent most of my time on the earliest stages. So seed A, I've done some, um, you know, special purpose vehicles and whatnot, um, for later stage companies as well. Um, but that's not where I spent the majority of my time. I'd say, you know, look, you always look at the same variables ultimately when you're looking at, um, a seed or a deal and, there you want to see like what's the problem that they're solving what's the solution is there how big is that market in the tam what execution do they have today and then who's the team against that who is gonna who's gonna get there and then ultimately when i look at those things what you do in the earlier stage and you just weigh the team like way 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 higher because when you look at the problem in the solution space the probability that they're they, that they scope the problem correctly and the solution that they're envisioning is is like correct and the go-to-market is correct, it's pretty close to zero. Um, it doesn't mean that they're wrong on all those things, right? They may have like one of them right or even two of them right, but there's usually some issues. So you, if you over-index on the team and the market opportunity, you tend to have a better outcome or I tend to see like I'm more excited because you have more room for error because like they're great, like an insane team going after like a really large routine, like when social was coming out, right? Like no one knew what the right social network looked like and all that, or, you know, whatever, then you have a lot of room. Now, if you take a great team put against a small TAM or like a really small market, their freedom to operate is constricted. If you take a mediocre team against a large TAM, they're going to get smoked by like someone else, right? So I'm not suggesting the, pro the product and, and the actual solution itself and the go-to-market don't matter. It's just they don't typically have that much execution by the time in that early stage. A, you get a little bit more. And so you start to, again, weight those variables. As you get closer to Series C, Series D, you weight those variables much more heavily, obviously, as you have more data. Um, so I would say just exceptional 
team. And I think a mistake that a lot of operator founders make that we made that I don't make anymore is, you know, you'd say, oh, well, there's, this is a great idea. This is a great team. They've got all these good aspects, but to your point of kind of the strengths, like, oh, well, if we just help them with this one thing or these two things, they'll, they'll make it, I don't know, sales, or they're not product people or whatever. And I learned the hard way. I think we all did that. You have to evaluate the business as on its merit and the person's merits. Like you have to be like, okay, no, we're, we're dead. Right. Like we're, we're, you know, or let's say we don't put the money in. Do you think this person's going to get the money no matter what independent of us? Right. Are we the only check? Are we the only believer? And is this person have the resiliency and the skill to, to figure it out and crack a code? And that's, that's that. I mean, we could spend time on this, but that part of like that leader, the founder, I look at that a lot now. Um, and that psychology of the person in the early stage, because um, it's critical. There's a lot of common patterns you'll see among great founders. Wow. I've loved this insight. I mean, like it actually resonates with what my assumptions are and having not looked at thousands of deals and not being, you know, in your shoes, just from my own anecdotal experience. Um, my mentor, he actually, um, he sold his business in the nineties and had a decent amount of liquidity and, he was the greatest options trader ever lived. And he actually hired the top analysts in the, in the market to look at qualitative data, which in clusters became quantitative about the character of the CEOs of publicly traded companies. So we're talking way later stage. We're talking about public companies and the leadership matter so much. In fact, um, only about 1% yep. of the 2,600 companies that they, that they did this analysis yep. on had what you call like high character qualities, like where they cared more about, you know, um, other people than themselves, where they kept their word, where they had, you know, corporate social responsibility framework. It was core to their, their wiring and DNA, how they treat their secretary, how they treat their spouse, their beliefs, like their world paradigm about humanity, all of these things, they could see these things and it would, it would, you know, indicate, Hey, here are, um, leaders of high character. And the, the assumption was they're already high capacity to be in a position of a publicly traded company, you know, as a CEO. Um, and so what they did is they bet on those companies and outperformed the S&P and the Dow by 30%. It's called the Missouri Fund. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool that like what you're saying is like, I really look at the founder and the DNA of the person, the people, because yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, I've heard the story about Airbnb where they pivoted from a bed and breakfast cereal company or something into the platform, the tech platform they became. Cause I always find those who have high character, they'll pivot and they'll do the right thing for shareholders and for the market, because they're not interested in their ego being fed. They're interested in just making the right decisions. And so, um, I love that you said that in your experience, um, with, you know, founding, uh, companies yourself, have you have you ever ran into people who just like, yeah, you'll never win and you know, you're never going to make it, but we believe in you. Have you ever had anyone do kind of be on the other side of that table where somebody's like, I think you're gold. I don't know about your idea that later you were able to work with them in some capacity because they valued you over maybe the concept. I've seen that. I have not had it for anything I've worked on where they're like, I mean, I've definitely been part of conversations where like, oh man, the founder is amazing they're working on anything else i would do it um that happened a lot like in the crypto wave that recently happened um for example i would hear about that but i haven't had that happen to my face uh that many people said that they would work with me uh, on something else um especially this particular concept it's been um it's resonated i think for the most part with the venture community which is something that i wanted for the next business that i did because it, you know you don't do things to raise money, but you most certainly have to consider the cost of capital when you're going to do a business. Right. So, you know, if it's like SpaceX, for example, like that guy knew when he was starting that company, that it was going to be a slog, you know, he's not going to make any money for God knows 15 years and he's going to build a rocket and it's going to cost a ton of money. And so there's a lot of narrative storytelling, and by the way, the, the pool of investors for the first round of that are, you know, and so, but you know that you're going into that eyes wide open. Um, that was something that I went into and said, I wanted something that had a broader pool of capital. Um, I didn't want that to be, um, I didn't want that to be a limiter with this particular business. Um, but you know, like entrepreneurs, it's tough because there's a, there's an, your job when you're investing is to try to beat 
the averages, right? And and create a portfolio which you know is, is it has an outsized return. But ultimately, when you look at someone who's going to create a company, I think that the profile there's some similarities with people who are late stage in public. But the real thing that psychologically I think is distinct is, you know, you hear that term chip on their shoulder. It's whether you call it that or there's got to be some. Um, you always try to find is there something driving them that's you know going to keep them resilient and going to keep them moving forward in the face of adversity because you know going from zero to one like you're creating something from nothing it's incredibly high energy and it's difficult and it's not that fun it's like building a company happens between press releases you don't it's not that like glamorous you know and so the people who see it on the outside and see that one article or the fundraise or whatever wow but like the days in between that, they're just thankless. It's like looking at a dashboard. This number's up. I'm going to call this per- like it's just lots of that. And so I, you have to find that resiliency. And so I mean, it's interesting. I'm starting to find some common patterns that I think I'm not suggesting every entrepreneur, but it's like pretty crazy how much these these entrepreneurs have had some sort of uh, tolerable trauma in their past. And I, I find psychologically that that's so. For example divorce, adoption, immigration. So like 40% of the Fortune 500 companies are founded or run by children of immigrants. Um, if you go look at like very famous entrepreneurs, Jeff Bezos, adopted, Larry Ellison, adopted, Elon Musk, divorced, immigrant. Like, so the the hypothesis that I have that I'm, I'm I'd love to kind of do more research when I have free time is, is this like a common trend among a lot of these entrepreneurs because I observe that. And immigration is, is one too. So what the idea is, is they have enough trauma that it's painful and then they, but it's tolerable. They can, they create the defense mechanisms that create strength and resiliency, but that carries them forward in the future. That's their basis of resilience. And that's how they get the chip on the shoulder, so to speak, right? And, but if they have an intolerable trauma, like let's say for God forbid, and you wouldn't wish this on anyone, like, you know, you, you have an immigration and, and I don't know, you're torn away from your parents and you just can't, you can't survive it. So they have to be able to get over it and be strong. And then you see this like really, really intense strike. Cause it's, it's not normal to be starting a company. It's not normal. like running a company after it's grown is the different, it can be the same person. It doesn't have to be a transition, but like, if you tell me who's the best person to run my company when it goes public, there's probably someone who doesn't have my background who could do a great job too, but I wouldn't put that same person in the seat when there's three people. Right. hundred percent. It's a different, I love this conversation and you, you've obviously thought a lot about it and you're articulating it so beautifully, but it's interesting because we were, you mentioned Elon Musk and I saw an interview where he talked about the CEO founder types. Uh, they usually get the amalgamation of all of the worst problems in the company coming up to them. So it's really un- intolerable, painful work. Like you're usually, you know, everybody else is comp- competent is handling the things that are solvable. You get the most painful, you know, hairy problems on your desk. And, and usually there's some, it's an, by the time it escalates to you, it's an emergency. So it's constant triage and the kind of psychological framework, like it's really unpleasurable. So you have to have a different why you're doing it because the work is so psychologically painful and brutal. There's so much psychic pain in it. And I just thought that was so true, you know, and later when it ends up building a system where it's just, you know, I think there's a point where like, in particular, once you've reached profitability, where there's like the creation of the system and there's the optimization of the system. So there's a period of innovation. And again, every company should be innovating all the time. Look at Apple and like the, the great companies are always innovating. So I'm not suggesting it's over, but there's this period that it's not like you, you're dead if you don't, like you're figuring it out. Create your, it's like you, you're buying your right to live and there is like an outsized amount of work. And so, you know, I, th- during this last wave, there was a, like a really large discussion about work-life balance and startups and how they, you know, it was in a healthy environment and whatnot. And what, you know, my counterpoint to this is how many things, how, how can you build something, you know, with three people? that should take 10 well you just spend more hours right like and so one it's i think that you know it doesn't mean that people who have 
need work-life balance shouldn't work at a, a startup is just pick your stage more properly or like pick a different role or maybe wait till it's like not a startup even sometimes because it's just not for everyone and that's okay um but i i, I think if you want to have growth in your life you have to accept this like concept of tolerable pain growth yeah. requires pain it's like you know i use the gym analogy a lot if you're going to the gym, like you literally, when you're like lifting weights, you should be in pain. You get sore, right? If you're not, you didn't have a good workout. So that's tolerable pain. And the result of that over many, many repetitions over multiple days and years is that you would be healthier and stronger, right? But it's pain actually. And that's the same thing for your mind. It's the same thing for skill set. Like you have to be uncomfortable. What you call discomfort or pain, that's the startup in a nutshell. And I, I think that's, you can't have, say you want to have growth and, and then not willing to be uncomfortable in my opinion so human this is a perfect um segue into talking about collective because why after all your financial success would you go back into all that uh that pain of starting another company is it because you want to grow more as a person tell us a little bit about collective and and share with us your new venture collective is um it's interesting people ask me why i do it and i guess it depends on what day you hit me um let's just in part, there's, there's always got to be some personal reason, right? I think, um, and then there's like a, there's a larger reason. So for me, I wanted to uh, personally learn and build a company that was at a higher level of skill than what I did before. And I wanted to solve a problem with an enduring solution, right? I didn't want to just like have something, sell it, make money, and then move away. So I was looking for, you know, I was way, I, I was intrigued by this concept of like, okay, there's these mass, some markets that are massive and, and they, and they require like our company to, to be alive and just huge to solve it forever. And, um, an insight that I had while I was at Xpen, I was investing is I really enjoyed being a founder, helping other founders, using my experience and, and helping them hopefully manage the challenges that I had faced. And also I learned a lot from them. I mean, something of course, these founders were better than me at certain points. And some of them were worse than me. Um, so it was good. I think it was a good cycle. But like the level of scale that we have in venture, you think in hundreds. And, and that's an, if you're lucky, you get to invest in hundreds of companies. That's a, like a lot of gross stage. I think, you know, maybe some who do Series Bs, they might invest in 20, 30, their whole career. Because you just take one or two a year. You do that for 10 years. I mean, that's it. And so I missed the scale of my first company, right? And operating in a problem at that scale solution, thinking in millions. I mean, we had insane traffic. At one point we were seeing 10% of all the Google searches in the world through referral traffic. Um, I missed having a team. So I, from a sports analogy perspective, like I look at venture like track and field and I look at like operating, you know, like it could be like football. So track and field, like I ran a track, you run a hundred, you run your race and then everyone does their own stuff. They're all over the place. You don't know what they're doing. The end, you know, the score and it adds it up. And then you're like, okay, cool. We won. That's like a portfolio model and it's good. You get to be independent, but like, you're not really um, working together. Um, in football, for example, um, or even basketball or any other sport where it's just like more dynamic, you have a great quarterback, but if no one's catching what he's passing, like you're, you're kind of screwed or like, you know, Alignment is in his block, quarterback's dead. And so, and a game can turn on a dime. So I missed that. I just missed that. And then collective, I saw this opportunity to, to kind of hit so many things that I was thinking about. Um, the largest group of founders in the country are these businesses of one, right? These solopreneurs. And many of them are just themselves, like a realtor or a lawyer who hangs up a shingle. My parents, both psychiatrists, had their own office. Some of them yeah. have some contractors, maybe one or two employees, but it's, it's, that's 36% of the businesses in the country. Wow. I didn't know that. 40 founders. Yeah. 36 and so. that are one, a sole operator in an LLC. Solopreneurs. Solopreneurs. Yeah. Wow. And so when you look at it like that, it's okay. There's a massive opportunity to help businesses move forward, but these are underserved people. Like I, as a venture back founder have a larger opportunity, like. Ashton Kutcher will call and invest in our company and I can text him. He's not going to call my mom and be like, yo, what's up with your psychiatry firm? Like, I love Ashton, like, but he's not going to do that. And so that's just like, that's the difference. So we were thinking, how can we help these people move forward? And the way we're looking at it is ultimately time is money. 
right? Most of these people, whether they bill on an hourly basis, project basis, all boils down to time is money. Psychiatrist, a realtor, whatever. So can we give them time back and save them money? And the, and that was basically our, our, our goal was how can we help these people focus on what they love and we say passion, not their paperwork. And so what Collective is in a nutshell is it's an online back office solution and it's geared towards, uh, to start, um, higher income solopreneurs. So what we had learned quickly was if you're making a hundred K net income, and many of your listeners probably know this, but all things being equal, you should probably strongly consider an S election for an LLC or, you know, a corporation. Cause you can save $10,000 a year on taxes. We remember sitting 50, you know, thousand dollars a year on taxes, with an S election, but it's not free. You have to do all these things when you're an S corp, the administration is heavy. You have to have like, do your books every month so that you can do quarterly taxes every, you know, and then you have to do your annual. Like it's not free. It's, it's, and so we're like, oh, okay. What if we say to you that $10,000 and then we do that work for you and you pay a subscription and that subscription should be materially lower than the amount you save, right? And that works. We think that's a logical person should want to do this, do that. right? Cause you're going to yeah. have to do some version of taxes and whatnot, right? You have to yeah. pay your taxes. It is what it is, unfortunately. And so that was how we started. And, you know, it's been working really well. We have, you know, thousands of, of uh, member businesses now, and we will form their company for them um, or take over um, and help them, you know, do an S election. We'll set up their books and do their books. We'll set up their, do their payroll. And then we do quarterly taxes. And I've had it, my boutique uh, consultancy. And I, in fact, I'm sitting here going, man, where were you? But I also, I also am like, I should still call us, call us if you ever go back. Yeah, well, right. And I, I was like, we still have the company open and I use it for special projects because I, speaking of film, I actually am now a film producer um, and making films. And, um, and so I use, I use it for different aspects of that. But that's so, that's so fascinating. So tell me a little bit about how you found these entrepreneurs. How do you access them? What's your marketing strategy as, as you're now a B2B essentially? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because our customers, while business owners and business leaders, they're ultimately what we call prosumers, right? They act like consumers, right? They find and discover products much in the way that you and I would discover product for like a new phone or whatever, right? This is the higher consideration purchase because it's, you know, your finances. And so most of marketing efforts to date um, have been successfully focused on cracky consumer channels like Facebook, Instagram, Google, um, member referrals, um, things like that. So things that you would consider Typically, consumer tactics um, are what we've been doing uh, primarily. It's been it's working fairly well. Um, that's incredible. Um, and how many? Wh- where is your company at its stage of growth? How how far along is it? Have you taken capital, venture capital money? Have you? Yeah, we've raised about eighty million dollars from um, pretty leading um, venture capital firms. So General Catalyst, um, QED, which is the you know leading fintech, um, Expo, of course, um, invested and. Um, we have, we have a number of other folks I've mentioned uh, who are great uh, individuals and companies uh, that have, you know, from entertainment and small business and like leaders from these different places, like the founder of YouTube, the founder of Patreon, you know, things like that to, to help us advise. Oh, that's, that's incredible. Um, so you are, was that your series A that you, that you raised that much? You're saying that's how much you've raised in total of the life of the company. That's how much we raised in total. Okay. And so where are you? Are you, did you take a series A, B where, how far along are you? Um, we have raised three rounds. Okay, cool. And where w- was your hope to go public? Was that, was that the trajectory, you know, who want you, who's might acquire you where it's kind of your exit strategy. Cause somebody like you would have all that probably <laughs> thought through. You know, I, I think when I was younger, I paid more attention to an exit strategy, having sold a company and then been on both sides of transactions now. Um, I mean, I'm about two companies and um, I don't plan the exit. I think what you have to do is you have to build something materially valuable and, you know, create the most value you can for, with, with the, with the dollars that you take and you can, you can help increase the probability of exit opportunities, right? So you should definitely invest time in with potential acquirers, but, you know, ultimately, you know, through partnerships and through discourse and whatnot, because, you know, 
for example, with Oracle, I believe we had three partnerships with them before they bought us. And they, I mean, just, it just made, they just knew our business so well. And it made so much sense for them to buy us at that time. And I often tell people like, you don't want to sell your company. You want your company to get bought. And if you sell your company, you have a much lower exit than if it's bought. So like if you're doing really well and you're hot and you don't need them, but that other company sees value, you'll get a premium to, Hey, I'm selling my company here as a banker and they run a process. It's, it can be a huge difference. So we don't have an exit plan that is for our investors that is acquisition based. You know, I hope, I hope that our last financing would be a public financing. Um, Cause I think the market is massive and this is a, you know, we could build a company like an Intuit or Shopify. That's, you know, a platform where these folks can congregate and get their things done. Oh, I love that you're thinking so holistically because there's, I, there's gotta be so many applications of what you guys can do for this market. Um, so tell me a little bit about, do you do any philanthropy? Like a, a lot of our listeners um, care a lot about, you know, causes and you've been helping so many entrepreneurs and I mean, private sector solutions are such amazing ways to make the world better and lift some of our greatest societal ills. But do you have a cause that's close to you and, it, you know, your family office focus on or are you involved in anything in terms of like the give back world? You know, there's a lot of, I haven't, we haven't figured out, you know, our, our perfect strategy. I think many of your listeners will probably identify with that. I think often it's, um, what do we care about right now? And, and, and we were, we're active. So, um, you know, we, we've donated to, for example, uh, my wife is, um, Ukraine and we, we did, you know, a big campaign around Ukraine and, and that, um, we've done, um, you know, we're supporters of code.org, um, which is, you know, trying to democratize access to programming. It sounds like pretty technical and dorky, but the idea is if computer science is like one of the highest paying, uh, ends up being one of the highest paying jobs, it's a very fundamental skill set in the world of AI. It should be like as basic, every high school should teach it, but you know, it turns out some high schools don't have the curriculum, they don't have the tools. So they've, they've done an excellent job. I think now they have, it was like 50% of like schools now have code uh, coding as a mandatory requirement um, in their schools. And um, I think they got a petition from one of the, I think the only one in history where 50 governors signed and said like they support that every state should have coding. And it's like uh like math kind of thing um, for competitive advantages country. So um, yeah, so we're, we're kind of all over the place, I would say. Um, but you know, there's a lot of, I think there's no shortage of things to do. And, uh, I definitely want to invest more time in being more like focused, but for now it's been, um, you know, things that we care about or dear and dear to like, you know, myself, my wife, and like, that's, that's kind of what we've been doing right now. That that's really cool. I'm so glad to hear a little bit about that. So, I mean, you know, as you've been on this journey and now that, I mean, it's really cool to hear you say, I'm not thinking of an exit in mind. I actually, maybe there's so many different ways this can grow into whatever it'll be. And it sounds like you really enjoyed the football side of it right so you don't want to get out of a game anytime soon and you're still really really young so do you have um children are you, you you said you're married do you have kids and you involve them in any of you know your business endeavors and things uh i don't have children yet but um next year that will not be the case uh so <laughs> after uh, february i will i will be joining the ranks of my friends as a parent so i will see i guess we'll see where i'm at when she's older but um you know, I was talking with a friend about this and he, he asked, you know, what are you going to do? We were talking about this whole concept of drive chip on the shoulder and whatnot. And I really don't think that's meaningful for, for me to, to have to work with, like, I, I want our kids to be actualized and resilient. I think it's more important, you know, if we have two kids or one, but you know, by our daughter for sure, like, what do you love to do? What are you good at? And then how can you build like a sustainable life? That means you're income is more than your expenses that where you're actualized like whether you are worth a million or 10 million or a hundred or a billion like i have so many friends that are billionaires at this point and i have friends that are worth 100 million like in the tech space in san francisco it doesn't matter like it, 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 I, if you enjoy i enjoy what i do i think we meaningfully are going to help a lot of people um i'm not naive to say like i'm not curing cancer i'm not doing something but like i'm helping parents get home earlier i'm helping put money in their pockets so that they can send their like put braces on like their real real life that's great like we're moving their lives forward and my team can move their families lives forward and i can my family it's like a real like really fun alignment and so 
if that's like what my kids want to do great i would love to like show them and if it's not like great just just be actualized and be resilient because ultimately you know you're gonna live your life every day there like your parents my parents wanted me to be a doctor you know and and they supported me of course when i didn't at the end but at the beginning they were like what are you doing you know um and i know a lot of my friends parents who pushed them into a profession and they took that advice and you got to live with it every day so um yeah i just hope i hope i hope she's actualized and resilient and independent just like super independent i don't that's that's my yeah. goal the money Cheers stuff will congratulations come. yeah thank you yeah that's so exciting it's the best i have three boys and it's like the treasure of this life just like having this this little person that you just you're so besotted in love with and they make the quality of life i mean it's 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 biological like they make your life better that's why we do it you know because it's not it's a lot of work but it's just so joyful they bring so much joy so i love i love all of this background is there anything that you know um when you invest or mentor or maybe even is your developing your own talent on your team are there kind of some i don't know about platitudes but like key key things that you're like, Hey, these are kind of tried and true things that I, you know, if you remember this lesson, this coupling or this phrase or this thought process, these are some pillars of which I've operated by that you like to pass down that you might share one day with your beautiful daughter. Just in terms of life, uh, or in terms of work. Yes. Life work either, or anything where you're like, man, these are just some real gifts. I learned this early, you know, like, um, and, or I, along the way, I realized I had this incredible realization, you know, like, um, what you talked about, about like, you know, it, you kind of had, you've seen there's some similarities in founders and there's similarities in, you know, how you, you follow patterns for things that are coming on the horizon. And was there anything where you're like, these are kind of just a capital T truths as a human being that I, I try to like really embody or share, you know, on my journey. Quite a few, um, but I mean, like a couple that I, I I think are good guideposts. I think first and foremost, and it's a it's a truism because it a lot of people know it, but I think there are things that you can control, and the things that you can't. You can't control like the war in Israel. You can't control the stock market. You can't control if an investor yells at you, right? But you can control how you react to that. Um, your decisions you make a result of that. Control. Um, how you communicate. And so focusing relentlessly on, you know, your inner fear can really help you a lot because that's ultimately all you have control over. Um, and making sure that you live, uh, you know, in alignment with principles and values, like while you're doing that and just making sure that like, I don't think, I don't have to think about like, if something happens in my company, I like think through like my values and principles and make the decision based on that. I don't have to, you know, dance around it and and having firm values and um it is really important it helps you as a human being you just don't have to think as much and, and it makes a better lifestyle and i guess honestly the golden rules is really where i, I kind of find the most there if there's like one core thing it's so easy like you know you be, be kind to people right be truthful like all the things that you would want from someone else and, and so that's, it's kind of very basic for me in that regard, right? So if you can, I try to take an attitude of continuous improvement too. I think a lot of people, myself included, like, you know, you want things to be perfect. They're not going to be perfect. And so having this concept of, I'm not trying to be perfect, but I'm trying to have continuous progress at a good pace and taking this very long view on life and yourself, you know, I don't look at collective, collective is not perfect. Um, but you know, we find, we, we just keep iterating and you can do the same thing with your life, you know, take just the progressive improvement. you always have room to expand and it's an opportunity. Like something horrible happens. It's an opportunity. What can I learn from that? What can I grow? It makes life a lot better when you don't look at everything like, you know, you're SOL because something bad happened to you. It's like, okay, well, what am I going to get out of this? I can practice patience. Someone's yelling at me. I can practice resiliency. I have to do a lot of work. Like there are opportunities to practice those values. So yeah, that's kind of some of my basics. I love those. Those are all wonderful. And um, just kind of wrapping up with our uh, last like question, it's a little more open-ended. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners about how to maybe get involved or something you're just, just like on your mind, like, man, I want to you know communicate this today. Is there anything else you want to share? 
I guess I'll just share one, just given the climate. I think everyone just needs to take a breath and, um, and give each other space and space to be human. I, I think we're all polarized so much these days. And uh, I think social media, our, our consumption of it, I don't want to blame social media, we're consuming it. And all these things are, are making us forget what makes, like we're, they're highlighting the differences because that's how those systems work. That's how they, they make money and creating anxiety. And I would just focus on what's bringing us together and similar. Like we're very alike. At the end of the day, we all just want to be happy. We raise our family. We want to have like good things happen. And if we take a breath and focus on the things that bring us together and just give people a little bit of room to maybe say something that doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, it's okay. Like, I think everything's going to be okay. So that's, I know that's a little heavy way to end, but uh, I just think it's critical that people just let people be human beings. Like, um, there's no sides. There's one side. We're just all human beings. Oh, that wasn't a heavy way to end. That's a dream. That's like music to my heart. We need to have these conversations more, right? Um, such a profound thing to end with. And, and thank you so much. I mean, like, there, there's never been a time more that in my lifetime where I've seen just like, you know, such us and them, such pitted against, such dehumanizing happening. Um, and, and the inability, I've always thought to myself, you know, what really makes humans human is our ability to hold things in paradox, that things can simultaneously be true and not true. You know, that there's gray, that there's nuance, that this, things are incredibly complex and we can hold those truths. And I think as we're dealing with whatever it may be on the political horizon, the financial horizon, the belief systems, can we, can we hold space and hold people in their totality and see ourselves in the other? So I love, I love what you said there. Human, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're just so inspiring. I'm so grateful there are people like you that have used your gifts and talents to impact so many people's lives. And I'm so excited to learn more about your services. I literally think I'm going to become a client like tomorrow. So, <laughs> great, so fun. Great. Thank yeah. you for having me. It was fun. Thanks so much. Do you need help with the next steps for your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call to schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at www.capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube.